I hope you picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes. Uh, actually began this message last Sunday. And if you're looking at your notes, last Sunday we covered the entire front page. And if you turn it over, the secret to contentment on the second page, we just began uh, the first point, uh, but we're not even able to uh, finish that. So we'll see how far we can get today. I may or may not be able to finish this message this morning. If I don't, we'll just continue it uh, next week. Uh, but I do want to just, uh, in terms of review, if you would, the first side of your notes, that next to the last paragraph, let's just remind ourselves of the uh, biblical definition of contentment. Uh, we talked about the fact uh, that Paul actually borrowed a word from the Greek Stoics. Uh, but he turned it upside down and totally redefined it. And you see that there in that next to the last paragraph. Paul redefined the word content to express not being self-sufficient. That's how the Greek Stoics define contentment. Uh, getting to that place of just uh, self-sufficiency, self-reliance. Uh, but Christ-sufficient. Uh, for Paul, to be content was being adequate for anything and everything life threw at him because of his reliance on Christ who lived within him, which gave him, of course, an unshakable calm, serenity, and peace in all things. As it says in Philippians 4.13, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So then if you'll just turn it over, we began to look at the secret to contentment. Uh, we did examine uh, the fact that Paul definitely can speak on this topic with credibility in light of all the trials and sufferings that he endured in life and how in the midst of those he came to learn this secret of contentment. And we're so thankful that he passed the secret on to us. And we said the first secret to discovering that Christ sufficiency in our lives, that calm in the midst of the storm, is viewing needs as opportunities to look to God's providence, viewing needs as opportunities to look to God's providence. Now, I'm going to move through some of this quickly because, again, we touched on this last week, just we're not able to finish this point, but verses 10 and 11 of Philippians 4, Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity. And, and, and let me just pause right there. What is he referring to? Remember, he wrote this book uh, to respond to a gift that he received from the church. Paul was imprisoned in the city of Rome because of his faith in Christ. And at the time of the writing of this letter, as we've seen in the past, he had already been in prison for four years. Some of that in Caesarea, but now in the city of Rome. And this was a very difficult time in Paul's life. He was awaiting a trial before the emperor, Caesar, Nero, and he did not know if he would live or he would be executed. And the uh, Philippian church, uh, loving Paul, concerned for Paul, uh, they took one of their members, Epaphroditus, and they sent him with this uh, gift 
uh, for Paul to uh, supply his material needs at this time. So what Paul is doing, he's rejoicing ultimately in God's providence, how God used the Philippian church to meet a very specific need in his life just at the right time. And then he said, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. Now, look at that next statement in your notes. Providence speaks of the provision of God as He takes the all things of life and orchestrates them to accomplish His purpose in the life of His child. And that's exactly what we see here as Paul orchestrated Paul's life and to to ensure his needs were met, and in this case, he used the Philippian church. We saw also last week that the word providence comes from two Latin words, pro meaning before, and video meaning to see. God's providence means, and this is marvelous for the believer, God foresees and therefore provides beforehand. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've come to Christ through faith, then God has a plan for your life. He has a blueprint. He has a purpose for you to accomplish, like we talked about with these two little babies that were before us earlier in the service. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? Do you remember that verse? It says, for we, God's people, are His, what's the next word? Workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, listen now, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul uses the analogy of a, a race course, a cross-country course. He says, God has a unique and very distinct course that He's laid out for every individual. And by God's grace and empowerment and provision, we run that course, and, and the goal would be to be faithful to Jesus all along the way, and then cross the finish line to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now listen, very careful, because this is a good summation of what we saw last week. In relationship to accomplishing God's plan for your life, God used His omniscience. And what's the word omniscience means? The fact that God is what? All-knowing. So God used His omniscience, again, in relationship to His plan for your life, to foresee every need you would encounter along the way. God foresaw every crossroad, every decision you would have to correctly navigate. God foresaw every adversity, challenge, and attack of the devil that you would have to overcome. And God even saw, foresaw every one of your failures in straying from His plan and the corrective measures that would have to be applied to get you back into the flow of His plan for your life. And then, it even gets better, as God foresaw every need, every decision, every adversity, every failure you would encounter in following His plan... He used His omnipotence, the fact that He's all-powerful, to provide beforehand for you. So God strategically placed along the course that He laid out for your life, 
the provision you would need. And he placed it in just the right place for just the right time for you to discover it and utilize it to fulfill his plan for your life. That is God's providence. That's what we mean by God's providence. God orchestrating you. God guiding you through the all things of life and providing everything you need to accomplish his plan. Now, this is not in your sermon notes, but let me just make three important observations about God's providence. First, from God's, or from the believer's perspective, from the from our perspective, God's providence is a mystery that is, that, is, that is difficult, if not impossible, to understand as we're walking through it. Uh, there will be many times in life, many, many times in life, where you simply cannot trace God's hand. You're just totally perplexed at what's happening and where you're called upon to trust God's heart. Believing, yeah, I don't understand, but I'm, I trust that God is too good to do anything cruel in the life of his child. He's too wise to make a mistake. But I also have to recognize that he's too infinite to explain himself to my finite mind. Now listen, like any good mystery... We will never understand the plot. We'll never understand the reason behind so many things that happen to us, and especially the painful experiences, until the story is finished. Therefore, faith is required on our part. Faith is required so that we don't give up on God too quick. That is, we're walking through that plot, we get so confused, we just close the book on God, say, forget God. So faith is required, so we don't give up on Him too quick, and we persevere to the, what? the end of the story, when eventually the plot will unfold, and the resounding praise from our lips will be, God is good, God is great, and God is compassionate. The second thing about God's providence, it does not promise you everything you want in life. It does not promise you everything you want in life, but it does guarantee everything you need to live out, not your plan, not your dreams, but God's plan for your life. Therefore, the truth of God's providence should be one of the greatest motivations in our lives as believers to submit to God's plan. To say, yes, God, here I am. I present to you my body, my soul, my spirit as a living sacrifice to live out your will, your plan for my life. It should motivate us to want to serve His agenda, to seek His approval. Because, listen now, the provision and the empowerment is in following God's plan and God's plan only. Third observation about God's providence. Although God's plan will be unique and different for each and every believer, there's a common denominator. 
there is a common denominator. And the common, common denominator is this. God's plan for every believer, regardless whether you're a pastor like me or a nurse like my daughter or Mike's employment or some of these soldiers in here or housewives or whatever, whatever, wherever God, you know, the particulars, regardless, God's plan is for every believer to build Christ's character in them by, by God's grace, to see Christ's character built in you. And listen now, very important, in order that you might bring spiritual benefit to others. That's God's plan for every believer, to build the character of Christ in you to bring spiritual benefit to others. Very specifically, to be very specific, to build up the body of Christ and to reach a lost world for Christ. I mean, we saw this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, right? As he exhorts us to move from self-centeredness to focusing on others to follow the example of Christ, he says, do nothing. Don't do anything from selfishness. Don't do anything with a desire to put yourself up on a pedestal to get the applause of men. No, he said, instead, with lowliness of mind and humility, you're to regard others more important than yourself. You're not to look to your own personal interests. Look to the interest of others. Look to how you can serve the benefit and the spiritual welfare of others. He says, let this attitude, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, your Lord, who, although he existed in the very form of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to selfishly grasp, but he took his deity and he emptied it into human flesh and poured it into our lives. As he became a servant to all men, a slave to all men, to die that humiliating death on Calvary's cross to bring us salvation. He is our Lord and He's our Master. So God's going to do the same thing in the life of each of His children. His desire is to build that character of Christ in you. To display it through you for the spiritual benefit and nourishment of others. Both the building up of the body of Christ and the reaching of the lost for Christ. Another way you can put it, we talked about this earlier in our study of the book of Philippians. He wants every believer to be a telescope for him, and also a microscope. When I say telescope, see, so many people in this world only see Jesus at a distance. They see him as some remote figure in history and nothing more. Well, God wants to use you as a telescope to bring Jesus up close and personal to those that you work with to your neighbors, those that you go to school with, those that you serve with in the military, whatever the arena God has placed you in. And He'll do that through your testimony as He builds Christ's character in you and they see the reality of Jesus, which hopefully will create a hunger and thirst in their lives to come to know the God that you're following. But then there are also those that they see Jesus being so insignificant, so small. So God wants to use you as a microscope to help people what? To see the greatness of Jesus. And how does he do that? Through your trials, through your suffering, through adversity. When, he sees, when they see God work in and through you in the difficult times in life, 
they, they were, all of a sudden, the greatness of Jesus is magnified and he's glorified as people are drawn to him. Now, in those three things, notice, and I, and I think this is sort of fascinating. Notice what God is doing in your heart and life through his providence. We talked about it being a mystery which requires what? Faith. Also, there are many needs, adversities, and challenges along the way that requires what? Hope. Hope from a biblical perspective is what? Confidence in God, that He's going to come through and meet your every need. And then we talked about providence is all about what? Serving others. Love. So don't miss this. When we talk about God's providence, first and foremost, you're the plan. You're God's masterpiece. What He's after more than anything else is to build in your life faith, hope, and love. Look in your notes, and we we won't get beyond this this morning. We won't get beyond this this morning. Look in your notes at just some examples of God's providence. Just some examples of God's providence. And uh, I'm going to move through this rather quickly. If you want to turn to these passages with me, you're more than welcome to. If I'm moving a little too quick, just sit back and relax. You have the passages there in your notes that you can refer back to. Uh, But look at the example of God's providence in Paul's life. In chapter 9 of the book of Acts, verse 15... Says now this this is at his conversion, when God's beginning to establish his plan for Paul's life. He says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Now the thing I want to point out there, notice. God says, hey, Paul, my plan for your life is that you're going to speak to me before kings. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning in our study of Philippians, we, see, we, we discovered how God accomplished that. And it was in a very mysterious way. How did God accomplish that part of his plan for Paul's life? He had a riot breakout where they came this close to killing Paul, and in God's providence, a Roman centurion swept in with some troops and rescued him from this mob that was tearing him apart. Roman centurion didn't know what to do with him, threw him in jail, and that began a four-year imprisonment for Paul, four years in prison. But as a result of that imprisonment, What happened, if you know the story? He spoke before King Philip, Felix, King Agrippa, King Herod, and then eventually to Caesar himself when he was sent to Rome. Now, folks, that's probably not the idea Paul had when God said those words initially to him. Oh, by the way, Paul, the way I'm going to accomplish this is throw you in prison for, for a number of years where you're going to suffer and be literally shackled uh, to a Roman guard uh, 24-7. So again, we're, we're back to that reality. God's providence is a mystery that requires faith. But we also see, if you remember our study in Philippians, how every step of the way, God supernaturally 
just at the right time. He was never early, never late. He met every one of Paul's needs. Not necessarily all of his wants, but every need to sustain him to accomplish God's plan for his life. And it all resulted in what? The spiritual benefit of others. The spiritual benefit of the church and reaching a lost world for Christ. Joseph. You're familiar with the story of Joseph. I don't need to say a lot about this. A man that suffered tremendous injustice at the hands of his brothers, was sold into slavery, and then he, like Paul, thrown in prison as a result of false accusations. And then, of course, you know how God eventually supernaturally raised him up to be second to Pharaoh only. And he did all of that for what reason? Well, look at Psalm 105. Psalm 105 tells us, Verse 16, and he, God, called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, sent a man before the children of Israel. Joseph, who was sold as a slave, they afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of the peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all of his possessions to imprison his princes at will, that he might teach the elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. Notice. A mystery. What do you think was going on in Joseph's heart life when he was sold into slavery? When he's languishing in a, an Egyptian dungeon in prison? I mean, he, he was perplexed. This guy was hurting. There had to have been times where he was terribly struggling with disappointment with God. What's going on? I, I, th- I thought you promised that you were going to use me in a remarkable way. And how do you explain this? So again, we're back to that concept of mystery that requires faith. We also see, if you're familiar, at just the right time, never early, never late, God came through, right? And did remarkable things to eventually elevate Joseph to that position of authority in Egypt. And, what, and, and for what purpose? Not so much for Joseph, but this passage, and he caused his people to be very fruitful, and he made them stronger than their adversaries. He wanted to use Joseph as an instrument to benefit his people. And then listen to this great statement that that Joseph made to his brothers when he was reunited with them. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer because they were afraid. They thought he was going to take them out because of what they had done to him. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me. Why? To preserve life for the benefit of others. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Again, you see those three elements of mystery, but God provide provision, but for the benefit of others. Look at Ruth. Look at the book. Go turn to the book of Ruth 
And I just want to focus on not Ruth's right now, but Naomi. Now, I hope you're familiar with the story. Uh, Naomi uh, was a Hebrew, uh, married to another Hebrew. Uh, famine had hit the land. She leaves uh, Israel. They lived in the city of Bethlehem uh, and, uh, to try to find food to, uh, to exist. And uh, left with, uh, she left with her husband and two sons. But what happens is her husband dies. Her sons marry Gentile women. Both the sons die. And now here comes Naomi back to her hometown Bethlehem after being away for years. And she's accompanied by her Gentile daughter-in-law, Ruth. And look at uh, chapter 1. Well, let me begin reading at uh, verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. Talking about Naomi and Ruth. And it came about when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was stirred because of them. And the women says, is this Naomi? She's finally coming back. And then notice Naomi's response. And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. And you know what Mara means in the Hebrew? It means bitter. She said, don't call me Naomi. You know what Naomi Naomi means in the Hebrew? It means pleasant one. She said, don't call me pleasant one anymore. Don't call me content anymore. I am bitter. And I am bitter, she says, because, because the Almighty has afflicted me. She's mad at God. She's angry, upset. In her grief, losing her husband, her sons. And then she says, so Naomi returned. Uh, and he said, she said, verse 21, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Now, that's how the book begins. But look how the book ends. See, I, we're not going to go through the whole plot, but look at the finish of the story. You go over, you go over to the last uh, chapter and look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. You know the story how God in his providence hooked up Ruth, the daughter-in-law, with Boaz, this very wealthy Jew that loved God deeply. And, so, and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. May He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to Him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Isn't that great? The story begins, and she's bitter, mad at God. And how does the story end? You see this precious old lady with this little baby on her lap, loving him. God having miraculously provided for her and and Ruth. Now, what this tells me, folks, is that God's patient with us. That he realized that we're going to struggle with disappointment. We will struggle at times, and He will not give up on us. It also tells me that God is so committed 
to His glory, that He will allow Himself to be misunderstood by His child temporarily to accomplish His glory. In other words, here's reality. God's willing to temporarily interrupt your happiness to call something to work for His glory. He's even temporarily willing to be misunderstood by you, to be maligned by you. And we see this in the but He will not give up on you. And He wants to bring you to that place of faith and trust. Uh, Esther, and let me just briefly mention this. You know, the interesting thing about the book of Esther, and remember God used Esther to save the Jewish race at that time. There was a plot that was formed by a wicked man by the name of Haman to destroy the entire human race. And if you've ever read the book of Esther, the name of God is never mentioned one time in the entire book. But God's providence is all over the book. And here's the thing that I want you to notice about Esther, which gives us, brings out an important point about God's providence. Haman develops this plot to kill the Jews. God in His providence has elevated Esther to be queen of this Gentile king that was in control. Mordecai, her uncle, knowing of the plot, he sends a message to Esther and says, Esther, you need to intervene and go to the king that he would spare the Jews. And listen to this. Then Mordecai told them, and and then what happens is Esther gets that message, and then she thinks, now wait a minute. You know, you can't go into the king unless the king requests you. As a matter of fact, she says, there's a law that if you attempt to go into the king and he hasn't requested your presence, that means automatic execution. And what you're asking me to do is to put my life at risk. Because if I go into the king because he hasn't requested me to come in, and 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 she says, I haven't even seen him for the last 30 days, he may kill me. And then here's what Mordecai replied. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, listen now, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. Now what does that tell you? We're not talking about fatalism here, folks. God doesn't override the human will. Esther had a choice. And as we relate to God's plan and providence, we have a choice. In other words, everything we're talking about is not automatic. It requires faith on our part, hope, confidence in God's provision, and submitting to God to use us for the spiritual benefit of others. And if we resist, if we move ourselves outside outside of God's authority to take off on our own, we're the loser. We're the loser. And God will raise up someone else to accomplish His plans and His purposes. And then as we close, of course, as you see there, what's the greatest example of this? Jesus. Who those passages and access, He was crucified by what? The predetermined plan of God. God was able to orchestrate the all things of life to accomplish His plan for the salvation of men. So as we close this morning, the question is, Are you perplexed 
in the mystery of God's plan and providence for your life? Are you willing to trust Him this morning? Although you, you, you don't understand the plot, you can't see any rhyme or reason, you're just hurting right now, you're, you're struggling with disappointment with God. This morning, are you willing to say, okay, God, I, I don't understand, I am perplexed, but I'm going to believe you that if your eye is on the sparrow and you even care for that little insignificant, that you care for me and that I can really trust you in my life. And you are too good to do anything cruel. You're too wise to make a mistake. And yes, you're too infinite to explain yourself to my finite mind. So although I cannot trace your hand, I'm going to trust your heart and I'm going to submit to your authority, submit to your plan and just keep my eyes on you. Because that's the only thing I can do. Amen? And to know His grace. So His invitation is extended. I hope every one of us will be... I can't imagine that this... There was truth in this message didn't touch every heart of every child of God in this place. It's such an important message. a relevant message in terms of God's providence and plan. which, Which calls for a faith response. Calls for that surrender to God's plan. And then, of course, you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful message for you to hear, that God loves His child so much that He protects and provides in that fashion, that He does have a plan, and that He has the power to accomplish that plan. And that plan will not only be for the benefit of others, but that's ultimately what's going to bring you joy as you see that plan lived out and you come to the end of the story and you say, yes, God is good. You know, I, I love that about, the, about the, uh, Job. You know the sufferings of Job, all that he went through. If you go to the book of James, you know what it says? It says the outcome. I love this. It says the outcome of the, of the whole story of Job is at the end Job came to one conclusion, and so do we. God's good, and God's compassionate. And that's what you'll discover in your life. In other words, you can't go wrong by trusting God. You can't go wrong by placing your faith in Jesus who died for your sins to to bring you salvation, and then knowing that the hands then, once you surrender your life to Him, the hands that will shape your circumstances, the hands that will mold your life, that will lead you, are the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. A love that will never fail you. A love that will never let you go. So please stand as the invitation is extended. Uh, Please come if you desire to unite with the church, make a public profession of faith.